0: Cool. Um, a few years ago, I was on holiday in uh, Tasmania uh, with, I think it was um, Aaron, Amanda, Kelvin and Victoria and obviously Chris. And now uh, we went to this amazing place called Tasmasia. Has anyone been there or heard of it? <laughs> Make sure you don't miss out. It's, it's great. It's not that good. But um, as you might be able to guess from the name, it's, uh, it basically is this uh, kind of, I guess, tourist attraction uh, and ha- there 's lots of mazes, like huge mazes there and there 's one particularly large one, which is uh, this hedge maze um, and it's it 's actually not that easy it 's pretty hard um, the The trees themselves the hedges are are really tall like they 're kind of two and a half meters tall, and you can 't just kind of look over or look through and you know figure out the exit. You actually need to go through the whole thing and, and kind of do it. Um, it could easily take you you know anywhere from half an hour to an hour if you 're unlucky, I suppose. Uh, to kind of get through it and finish it. Um, If it was dark and you didn't know your way, I could imagine you'd be there circling for for quite quite some time. Um, But let's pretend you're at Tasmania and uh, you're hopelessly lost. You're going around in circles, you don't know where the way out is. Um, Every corner, every dead end, it kind of looks the same. What would you do? Uh, but pretend, just for a moment, that uh, you hear your friends' voices in the distance somewhere. Uh, even though you're still lost, and even though you don't know the way out, you don't know, you know how you're going to get out, because you can hear your friends' voices, you know that there is help either on the way, or they've managed to find a way out. There is this encouragement suddenly that, that occurs, because you know that it will be fine. That as long as you keep going, you're going to find your way out. Well, we've been going through this series on the book of Zechariah. And the book of Zechariah is a little bit like those voices of your friends. Zechariah's voice is this one that encourages us to keep going even when it feels like we're lost. Even when we can't see the end in sight or don't know exactly what God has planned, it's this voice that reminds us that it's going to be all right. You might feel like your faith is wavering, and maybe you feel like you're wondering. Uh, but, and maybe you're not sure if you're doing this Christian thing all quite right. Uh, but there are these clear and unmistakable signs that God is still in control, that God has a perfect plan, and his timing is good. At this point in time of history, it's about 520 BC, the Israelites were spiritually wondering. Uh, the temple lay in ruins, had been destroyed by the Babylonians a number of years earlier, and the nation had been ravaged. Its inhabitants had been scattered. Uh, the generations before them, their forefathers, had all forgotten God. They'd strayed from God's word, and they'd uh, they'd reaped the benefits of that. But then comes along Zechariah, and his name means the Lord remembers. And so the Lord knows their situation. He gives them Zechariah and this message. To encourage them in their journey, he comes with that encouraging voice, reminding them about what really matters and that God still has a plan and knows a way out for them. It really is quite a fascinating book. Uh, There are more prophecies regarding Jesus in Zechariah than any other minor prophet. Uh, And we see many of these prophecies fulfilled in detail by Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, But aside from those, there are also other prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled that talk about Jesus' second coming. Uh, As you'll remember from the first uh, sermon in the series, Zechariah begins in chapter 1, in the first six verses, with this invitation to return to him. They're spiritually far from the Lord, but God invites them back. Uh, And then after that, Zechariah has a series of of visions. He has eight visions from chapter 2 through to chapter 6. Uh, Now these visions, they are quite something. Uh, They're a little weird, they seem very random, uh, and indeed they are a bit perhaps like your dreams, a little bit zany. Uh, But all of these dreams, all these visions that he has, they reveal a part of God's plan for his people. They all have relevance for us, both back then in Zechariah's day, but us today. Uh, Some of them have a more obvious and and perhaps a more direct meaning for the Jewish exiles at the time, while others speak to a broader audience in Zechariah's future, both up until Jesus' first coming and looking towards his second coming. So today we're going to carry on that series. We're looking at the last three visions in Zechariah chapters 5 and 6, and these are the last three of the eight visions in total. Now, each of these visions, they, they show us how God will deal with the problem of sin at different levels. The first vision, which is actually the fifth vision, shows us how God will deal with sin on an individual level. The second vision shows us how God will deal with sin and remove it from his people. And in the third vision, God executes judgment for sin once and for all and restores peace throughout the entire world. And there finally is one last part to so chapter 6, after those three visions, and it's a word that points us to jesus the messiah let's pray heavenly father we thank you for this morning we thank you that despite the rain and despite this winter season uh, that we can still come together and we can worship you wherever we are whether we're here at church whether we're in perth and another church or whether we're at home watching online Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus, the Christ, your Messiah, for who he really is. I thank you, God, for the book of Zechariah. And I thank you, Lord, that you did not leave him out, that he is not uh, there by coincidence or accident. uh, But he's there for a specific purpose. And he shows us what it means to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray that today we would leave changed that you would help us to see Jesus for who he really is. In his name we pray, amen. I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Verse 1. I looked again, and there before me was a flying scroll. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll, 20 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And he said to me, This is the curse that is going out over the whole land, for according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished, and according to what it says on the other, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. The Lord Almighty declares, I will send it out, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of anyone who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in that house and destroy it completely, both its timbers and its stones." Picture for a moment that there is this giant parchment of paper flying throughout Castle Hill. Uh, it's about nine metres by four and a half metres, uh, and it's the size of, a, I suppose, a large billboard. On one side, it has written The Consequences for Thieves, and on the other side, it has a Punishment for Liars. And so you watch this giant billboard flying around looking for houses. As it reaches a particular house, it hovers for a moment as though deciding what to do. And more often than not, it decides to nosedive, kamikaze style, and crash right into the house. Its occupants inside are flung into outer space, banished, never to be seen again. The billboard continues to pulverise the house into the ground so that you wouldn't even be able to tell that the house was there once it was done. And so Bill the billboard continues going around Castle Hill, house by house, throughout every suburb in Australia and then the world, leaving a trail of empty plots everywhere. Sounds a bit wild, doesn't it? Well, that, I suppose, is the 21st century version of this vision that Zechariah had. The scroll in this vision represents the law, and it also represents the curse that accompanies the breaking of God's law. Just as a large billboard with flashing lights is clear for everyone to see, so too are the words of Scripture that tell us what happens to those who break God's covenant. As plain as day, the law makes us aware of our sin. It shows us the boundaries within which life is meant to be lived, just as God had always intended. The law is good. The law is like the flags at the beach that show us where we can swim safely and have a good time. These flags make it clear to us that we as mere mortals can live and and make us clear as how we can live as mere mortals in relationship with a holy God. It's not the law that saves us, but it shows us when we go wrong and it steers us back on track. Galatians 3.24 in the NLT says, The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. The law protected us. It kept us on the right path. Deuteronomy chapter 28 details all the blessings and all the curses that will happen to the Israelites if they obey or disobey. And the point of these curses is to serve as a warning for us of what will happen when we choose to live separate from God's way. It's a little like those drink driving ads that you see on TV. This is what happens when you drink and drive. You'll get caught, you'll pay a hefty fine, you'll lose your license, Innocent people might die or be permanently maimed or crippled. And just as it's incredibly dangerous to drink and drive, so too is it dangerous to ignore God's laws. God really doesn't want us to suffer the natural consequences of our sin, so he makes it very clear what will happen when we disobey, just like those ads. For those in Zechariah's day, many had forgotten or they'd become complacent about God's word they thought that they could get away with stealing or lying and that there would be no consequences it's possible that zechariah singles out these two particular sins because of the context at the time rebuilding the temple was meant to be the number 1 spiritual priority the temple was where they could go and meet with god but the people were misusing the funds they were not giving to the work or prioritizing or they were prioritizing their own wealth instead of the temple and they were doing so deceitfully. Today, we're seeing more and more the erosion of God's values, telling lies to get ahead or manipulating the truth so that we're looked at more favorably, are pretty commonplace nowadays. As Christians, we're tempted to lie about the sins we commit because we're afraid of what others will think about us if we tell them the whole truth. And so, disingenuously, we add the sin of lying to our pile of others. And then, when we get away with it, it becomes so much easier to do it again a second time. Our consciences and our hearts grow resistant to the Holy Spirit inside us, telling us otherwise, until we don't even realise that we've fallen into habitual sin. When someone asks us a tough question, maybe someone in your small group or a brother or sister in Christ, we're often tempted to tell half-truths or straight-up lies as a defence mechanism, instead of being honest and vulnerable with one another. It's like when Pastor Joe asked me accountability questions. I'm not saying I do this all the time, but I'm also not saying I don't do this all the time. It's so much easier to lie, isn't it? Or to downplay the extent of the things that I'm not proud of when he asks me. The vision that Zechariah has of the flying scroll is a reminder that just because we are able to get away with sin without any apparent consequences, God still knows full well what is going on, and he will hold us to account. We are fools if we think that we can hide our sin in the privacy of our own homes. One day, God's judgment will catch up with us and come crashing down on our parade. May we spend some serious time with God contemplating the gravity of our sin. May we truly mourn over our spiritual condition. May we endeavor to be people who are honest and transparent in our speech and our words. May we have a healthy reverence for God and his laws. The second vision, the woman in the basket. Look at Zechariah 5, verses 5 to 11. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, This is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, to the country of Babylonia, to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. This second vision shows us how God will ultimately deal with the problem of sin amongst his people. The vision would have been received quite differently by the people of Zechariah's day compared to us, who live on this side of the cross. The word that's used here for basket is the word ephah, Uh, Now, this basket was used in the marketplace as a common way of measuring out grain. An ephah of barley, for example, is roughly equal to 22 litres of barley. Now, the woman in the basket represents the sin of the people. She is wickedness personified. And notice that God demonstrates his authority and his absolute sovereignty over evil by pushing her into the basket and sealing it with the lead cover. The woman and the basket are then carried by two other women with wings flown high into the sky and taken to Babylonia, where it will be kept. Now, for the Israelites at the time, this vision was affirmation that God would remove wickedness and evil from their land and from their people. It would be removed and taken to Babylon, the capital known for its wickedness, idolatry, and sexual immorality. Of course, for us living under the new covenant, God has revealed to us this mystery. Our sin is not carried away by angels, but rather dealt with by the blood of Jesus. The penalty of our sin is carried away from us because Jesus paid for it by dying on the cross in our place. We are no longer captive to sin. Titus 2 tells us that the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, so that we can live self-controlled and upright, godly lives. You see, choosing to reject God's offer of forgiveness and reconciliation is choosing to pay for the debt of our sin ourselves. And that debt is eternal separation from God, the God who is the source of life and everything that is good. However, if we put our trust in Jesus to forgive us and to make him Lord of our life, then we get to experience real fellowship with God. We receive his righteousness as our own and no longer have to live condemned or guilty. We are released from the fear of sin and shame. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not account against them and whose spirit is no deceit. Psalm 103, 10 to 12 says this He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the reason that we can rejoice always and give thanks in every situation because of what the Lord has done for us. It is cause for great celebration and nobody can take it away from us. The truth of this promise that we have in God must never become old news to us, and we must never take it for granted. Every day his mercies must fall afresh on us and renew us in our mind and spirit. This vision is a reminder of God's great love for us. Just as wickedness is removed from Israel, so too has God removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. The penalty of sin has been paid for in full by the blood of Jesus. The third vision of the four chariots. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my lord? The the angel answered me, These are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going toward the north country, the one with the white horses toward the west, and the one with the dappled horses toward the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, Go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, Look, those going toward the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. This is the final of the eight visions that Zechariah had, although this particular one draws many parallels to the first vision back in chapter 1, which Joe talked to us about and was called the angel among the myrtle trees. In the first vision, there there are at least three different colored horses, red, brown and white. In both visions, the horses represent God's servants who go throughout the earth executing his judgment. In the first vision, they return and report back peace throughout the earth. But in this final eighth vision, there are four chariots. Each has at least two horses, either red, black, white, or dappled, which means spotted or or patchy. And each of these chariots goes out in one of the four different cardinal directions, north, east, south, or west. Only the horses that went to the north report back, having given, ha- having given rest to the Spirit of God. Now, during the time of these visions, we need to remember the context of Israel. Israel is still in tatters. Their nation is just beginning to recover their identity after having been exiled to Babylon since 586 BC. They're still under Persian rule, and they're nearing the, se- the end of their 70 years of exile. Their current experience of oppression and disillusionment are far from what could be described as peaceful. The first vision of a universal peace certainly describes a time that many of the Israelites would never have, ex- never have experienced or could even possibly imagine. The horses in this final vision travelled to the north, and they can be explained by understanding the, ge- the geography of Israel. Since Israel is situated by the Mediterranean to the west, and the wilderness to the east, most of the enemies, such as the Babylonians, would have invaded them from the north. The, in, the implication here is that the divine servant going to the north accomplished victory over Israel's enemies and established peace there. Assumably, the other directions uh, were already at rest as, the, as, in, the, as, the, as in the first vision. And so, this vision would be somewhat similar to a refugee in, say, Ukraine right now, being told that there will be complete peace with Russia. It's a little difficult to say whether this vision has actually come to be realized, at least physically, in Israel today. Uh, indeed, uh, Israel today has its own independence, uh, but peace does appear to remain elusive. However, I'll leave that for other Bible and historical scholars to debate. What really matters is the spiritual significance of these two visions. What is clear is that God is sovereign. He is the Lord of heaven's armies. He sends out his divine servants and they execute judgment and bring peace. God is clearly the one who is in control. He directs what happens and when it happens. His servants are depicted in this vision as powerful horses that roam throughout the entire earth. On their return, there is no questioning their ability to enforce peace, even amongst God's fiercest enemies. God has the power, and he has the authority to dispense justice and to bring the wicked into submission. God has the final say, and he controls the narrative. Everything else, whether powers, rulers, or authorities, are merely pawns he uses to accomplish his purposes. Again, we have the benefit of living on this side of the cross. We have a fuller picture, now that Jesus has come, of what he intends to do. But of course, it is with the second coming of Jesus when God will fulfill this vision once and for all. As I mentioned before, the book of Zechariah has many references to Jesus and his coming, including this one in chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. From our privileged position in time, we can see that Zechariah is talking both about Jesus' first coming as well as Jesus' future reign. We know that on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus was crucified, that he entered Jerusalem lowly, meekly, and humbly, riding on a donkey, to great rejoicing and shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And because this first half of the prophecy was fulfilled so accurately, even though it was predicted more than 500 years before it even happened, we can therefore also trust that the second half of this prophecy will also come to pass. One day, God will eliminate war and proclaim peace to the nations. He will extend a Christ's rule amongst every nation, from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Amen. Now, I suspect that this vision is just as relevant for us today as it was for the people back in Zechariah's time. I'm not sure if it's just me, but I look around the world at all the events and things that are happening and I become more jaded or sceptical about humanity as I get older. It seems like the world is falling further and further away from God's intended design. I think of the pandemic uh, with no obvious end in sight. I think of the war in Ukraine and significantly greater rumours of wars. I think of the rise of floods and unprecedented weather events. I think of the knock-on effect of all of these things on the economy, on inflation, supply chains. I think of the increased political turmoil, turmoil, civil unrest, and erosion of godly values. And it seems all to be rapidly escalating in just the last few years. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know what all of this means. But one thing I do know, it's all a part of God's plan. None of it is a surprise to him. None of it is an accident. Zechariah's vision should remind us all that time is marching on towards the inevitable day when Christ will return in unrivaled, triumphant victory. The signs of the end of the times have always been on show, arguably never clearer now. God's plan to restore all of creation, humanity included, has not changed from the moment that he set the universe in motion. Victory will be had over enemies, no matter which direction from which they come. While it may not be obvious from a human perspective, God's plan to establish Christ's reign once and for all is happening exactly as he is purposed. Just as Zechariah encourages the faithful of Israel to not lose hope because of their seemingly hopeless circumstances, we too must fix our eyes not on this temporary world, but on Jesus, the Christ, the coming Messiah. He's coming back to eradicate sin on a universal scale once and for all. The final section of Zechariah 6 is not a vision per se, but rather a message that the Lord gave to him. The exiles who returned were led by primarily two people. The first was Joshua, the high priest, and the second was Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Now just to be clear, this Joshua is a completely different Joshua to the one in the book of Joshua. Uh, It was ultimately under the leadership of these two men, Joshua and Zerubbabel, during the reign of King Darius of Persia, but the temple was eventually rebuilt and completed in 515 BC. Throughout Israel's history, it was typical for Israel to hold two separate offices, one for a king who primarily led in a political and military role, and another another office for the high priest who had spiritual and moral duties. Here in Zechariah 6, however, God tells them to put a royal crown made out of silver and gold onto Joshua, Who was the high priest, which is unusual. Let's read from Zechariah 6, verses 11 to 13. Take the silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jozadak. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty. And will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. These verses alone suggest that it is therefore Joshua who will ultimately lead and oversee the rebuilding of the temple. However, we know from chapter four, which Joe preached on last time, that this rebuilding will happen not by might, not by power, but by God's spirit. And in chapter four, we also read that, that it is Zerubbabel who will lead this effort. Zechariah 4, 8-9 Then the word of the Lord came to me, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. In hindsight and through history, we know that it is indeed both Joshua and Zerubbabel who were involved in the work of the rebuilding of the temple, along with the, the encouragement from the likes of prophets Zechariah and Haggai. What then do we make of these verses where Joshua is crowned? And what of being clothed in majesty and sitting and ruling on the throne? Well, again, it's clear to us New Testament readers that this is far more than just the installment of Joshua as high priest working alongside Zerubbabel. It is indeed another prophetic word concerning Jesus. The crowning of the high priest foreshadows the role that Jesus will play as both our most high priest and king rolled into one. Jesus is our king to be worshipped, to be revered, and to be obeyed. He sits on the throne and is crowned with glory. But at the same time, he is also our high priest. He represents us perfectly before God the Father. He intercedes for us continually, and he makes it possible for us to be one with him. In the verses that we've read, he is also referred to as the branch. There are numerous references to this promised Messiah as the branch, uh, and it's rich in messianic prophecy. Uh, the main references we can find in Isaiah four, two, eleven, one, and Jeremiah twenty-three, five, and 6. All of these verses speak about the coming Messiah, our glorious branch, who will bear good fruit, who will ru- rule wisely, who will be called the Lord, our righteous saviour. The idea is further affirmed in the New Testament in John 15, Romans 11, and Jesus himself stating in Revelation twenty two sixteen, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Clearly, Jesus is the branch, the root of Jesse and descendant of David that Zechariah is referring to. In uh, verse 13 of chapter 6, Zechariah also adds this to the picture of the Messiah. He says, It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty, and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. Indeed, Jesus would tear down the temple and rebuild it through his death and resurrection. Uh, We need to go to the New Testament to understand what this fully means, but in John chapter 2, After Jesus has cleared out the temple from the money changers, the Pharisees question his authority. And in chapter 2 of John, verses 19 to 21, Jesus answers them. He says this, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. The temple that Jesus is saying will be destroyed and raised again in three days is a reference to his own body. Jesus is greater than the temple. The temple's purpose was to be a place where the people could come to meet with God. But Jesus' sacrifice was far greater than the physical temple because it meant that anyone who puts their trust in him could now freely come into God's presence, irrespective of any physical structure. So Jesus fulfills this vision shared by Zechariah. He is the branch, the root of Jesse and the line of David. He, by the sacrifice and resurrection of his own body, built a spiritual temple that far surpassed the physical one. And he is our perfect priest-king, who demonstrates a harmony with the Father that no earthly person has. There is no doubt that Zechariah's word from the Lord at the end of chapter 6 points us to Jesus, our priest-king. It reminds us of the freedom that we now have in him, to approach God no matter where we are, without the need of any other mediator. 1 Timothy two five puts it like this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. And finally, Zechariah ends the chapter with this final warning in, in verse 15. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. Here, Zechariah reminds us, his, reminds his people of the conditional nature of this blessing. This will only happen for the Israelites if they diligently obey the Lord their God. Many of God's blessings are only truly realized when we choose to trust and diligently obey him. If I continue to place my security in worldly things, then I will never experience the all-surpassing peace of the Lord when those temporary things are taken away. If I focus my affections and my efforts on gaining material wealth, then I will never know what it is to be truly satisfied because I am only investing in fleeting wealth instead of building treasure that will last to eternity. In the same way, if we want to experience the blessing of knowing God intimately in this lifetime, then we need to position ourselves in a way That enables us to best receive from Him. Draw near to Him, and He will draw near to you. If you're like me, then you might tend to prefer reading the Gospels or perhaps the letters in the New Testament over, say, the prophets or the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Hopefully, today you are at least a little persuaded that there is still much richness to be gained from reading some of the the lesser known books of the Bible. They contain a wealth of wisdom and still speak directly into our 21st century minds. When we read through New Testament lenses, they provide us a fuller picture of who Jesus is and the future that awaits his people. Certainly today we have seen much rich evidence that every page of scripture points us to this Jesus and God's plan for the world culminating in his return. May we say like Paul, Maranatha, which means, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your Zechariah. We thank you, Lord, that the pages of Scripture and this book and this chapter that we've read encourage us, remind us, point us to you, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for the many things that you have done for us. We thank you that you have taken away the penalty of sin from us, that we can trust in you and have relationship with you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. We thank you, Father, for the encouragement that you are in control, that you are sovereign, that you will deal with sin, that you are coming back, and that you will bring peace to this world. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, a God who cares for us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to the entirety of your scripture, whether that be in the Old or New Testament. Father, I pray that we would heed the warnings that are laid out in your words. And Father, I pray that we would delightfully and joyfully rejoice because of them. Father, we pray that you be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.